Hey everyone, this is Matt Kamen, co-founder of Envision Consulting and the host of the podcast, Nonprofit on the Rocks. Before the pandemic, the part of my job that I loved the most was going on happy hours with my clients, with nonprofit leaders, and just anybody who was a badass do-gooder in nonprofit. Over drinks, I'd learn why they got into nonprofit, what inspires them, what keeps them motivated, and what drives them insane. When everything shut down, I realized how much I missed those conversations. And honestly, drinking alone right now isn't that much fun. So then it occurred to me that not only do these conversations not have to end, but maybe there are like one or two listeners out there who'd like to listen. People like me, who are tired of the same boring industry podcast and want something different. So pull up a seat, pour yourself a drink, and join me in the conversation. Hi, Patty Panicha. I am so excited that you're joining me today on Nonprofit on the Rocks. I think I was telling you, but I'm a terrible student and I never do research on anybody. I just kind of wing it. But for you, I fully nerded out because you've just done so many amazing things in your career that I wanted to make sure I highlighted everything. So thank you so much for joining us today. Wow. Thanks, Matt. I'm really uh, stoked to be here. <laughs> well, and before we start, I just want to tell the listeners it is 1030 in the morning, but because this is Nonprofit on the Rocks, I'm actually going to open up a bottle of champagne that I have because I'm so excited to have you. And then I know you said you were drinking something. So what are you drinking? Well, don't be too impressed. This is a bottle that I found in the refrigerator. I think it was my daughter's. It's a cheap bottle of Sauvignon Blanc. Listen, whatever works. So yeah. <laughs> there you go. Cheers. I hope that wasn't too loud. <laughs> so this I'm is going to ruin my, the rest of my day, but you know, whatever. I hope, I hope so. <laughs> so. Cheers to you. Thank you for joining me. Here you go. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so first off, I know you said people like are always mispronouncing your name. And I know I had to ask you a few times. It's Italian. It is. That's right. And, and you a, are a dual citizen. I am United States and Italia. So can you just tell me really quickly about like, you know, your background and coming here and how often do you go back to Italy and if you can actually cook really good Italian food, because if you can, when this plague is over, I'm, I'm <laughs> just inviting myself over to your house for that cheap wine and some uh, pasta. <laughs> well, actually, my parents were born in Italy and then I got the citizenship through them. So we do go back a lot. I have a lot of family there and my daughter was living here there until the pandemic. So I was really going there a lot. Where was she living? What city? She was in Rome, but she had been also living in Florence. And she was researching for her PhD, which had a lot to do with Italy. So she was over there for a few years. Italy is one of my favorite places. So my husband and I booked a trip. I don't know if it's actually going to happen for this summer coming up. We'll see. We'll see if the pandemic is finally gone. But I'm very excited. But like I said, no matter what, I'm coming over to your house. The minute I can, I'm coming over to your house. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome to be here. Oh, I will. Thank you. Okay. So... Just as everybody should know, you're a former professional surfer, which I want to talk about. You're a broadcast journalist, CNN reporter, Pepperdine train lawyer. I mean, you've fought for gender inequality in sport or gender equality in sports. You've done nothing with your life. Like you're just totally just wasting your time and twiddling your thumbs at home. I'm I'm just there's so much going on. But first I kind of want to talk about surfing a little bit and how you got into it. I did a little a little research on surfing and those guys. I mean, I can watch them in shorts all day long. I don't understand how they have such good bodies, but you know, surfing must be much more complicated than it looks like. So tell us how you got into it a little bit. Just kind of uh, pushed my way into it. I, it wasn't easy when I started. It was the early 60s and there weren't a lot of women, but I was just a little kid. And I used to be with my grandma off the, before we moved to Hawaii, before my family moved to Hawaii, uh, we looking off the Huntington Pier and watching them surf and I'd sneak back to the beach after she, you know, had a little red wine and fell asleep after lunch. And, uh, and I'd, uh, you know, wait on the shore to try to borrow surfboards and paddle out. And I was a kook, but that's surf term for someone who doesn't know what they're doing. <laughs> it just was something that you just decided to start doing. Yeah, I just loved looking. I watched it for hours while I was fishing. Never caught any fish, but <laughs> <laughs> I saw a lot of surfing. <laughs> so... Gidget. Wasn't Gidget around at that time? Didn't she do surfing or am I just totally making that up? Oh, no, I know Gidget. I, her name is Kathy Koner and she lives in uh, Pacific Palisades. As a matter of fact, uh, well, I guess your listeners can't see it, but she just gave me this recently. 
It's wow. a, it's a, uh, I was using, putting the wine on it. It's a coaster, but she's, it's a picture of her and it says to Patty love Gidget. That, that is so <laughs> it's cool. funny you ask that. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I honestly, I thought Gidget was just like a fictional TV show. That's so cool. Oh, she's a lovely, lovely person. So cool. Okay. So you started to get into surfing. When did your family find out about it? And were they pissed off that you were just like sneaking off to go do surfing? Well, uh, they didn't find out about that. We moved to Hawaii. I and mean, I went kicking and screaming. Uh, and then when I got there, I went, hmm. <laughs> they were never real impressed with it. <laughs> you know, they thought it was a it was a bohemian thing when I started. And that's what I love and still to this day love the most about it. it you know, it's so pop now and everybody does it. But back then it was, it was a, you know, we were juvenile delinquents in a lot of people's minds. And I didn't mind it all. So cool. And when you were surfing at that time, were there, I mean, were, were you the only woman in the ocean? Were there other women that were with you? Oh, there were other women. There weren't a lot, but I was living on the North shore of Oahu, which is, you know, where the big waves are, the places maybe your listeners have heard about like Pipeline and Waimea Bay and Sunset Beach and all these places. So there were mostly men, but there were a few women and we all knew each other and, and supported each other, you know. Actually, the one thing that I didn't research that I'm really curious about is you're married. Mm -hmm. right? And your husband, was he, was, is he, was he a surfer or are you just totally like different world? You know, he was a pioneer hang glider pilot. Oh. And, uh, and when I met him, you know, I thought, oh, this guy's got to have to learn to surf if I'm going to marry him, right? And so I took, you know, I told him that. And then he said, I'd love to learn to surf. So I started taking him surfing. And he says what I did was paddle him out and say, all right. <laughs> you know, and I think some surfers find it hard to explain what it is they're doing. But so, but you know what, he, he learned and, and we've been married for since 1985. So he doesn't surf very well. He'll be the first to tell you, but it doesn't matter to me now. Because as long as my friends are having, none of us do, as the older we get, you know, we used to surf great big waves with little tiny boards. Now we surf little tiny waves with great big boards. But, you know, as long as he's having fun in the water and doesn't mind, you know, if I stay out longer than he does and, you know, it's great. It's great. And you're still, you're still going, going in on a regular basis? Yeah. It's so, I have to tell you, and I think we talked about this before when I first met you, but the ocean, at least in California, is so cold. I understand that you wear like a whole suit, but it's so cold. How do you get past that? I don't surf as much in California. I, I have my family's home now where I grew up in Wailua, Hawaii, on the North Shore. And when I'm there, I'll surf every day. When I come back to the mainland, you know, I don't live near the beach, so it's hard. And I don't surf as much here. I'm a wimp when it comes to cold. The California surfers can handle it. Those East Coast surfers can kick my butt. I mean, is it totally a myth that they pee in their, their suit? I mean, is that totally, <laughs> totally a myth or is that true? Depends how cold you are. <laughs> yeah, but is, is pee really that warm? I mean, I wouldn't know, but I guess maybe, <laughs> I guess maybe it works. <laughs> Let's see, Your Honor, direct the witness to answer the question. Um, <laughs> That's so funny. That's so sorry. So how did you guys meet? I was the reporter at the ABC station in Santa Barbara, weekend anchor there. And he was the uh, cameraman for CBS affiliate there, uh, KCOY. And so I would see him on press conferences. You know, it's a small town. And they, we used to have this group called the Lesser Press Club, <laughs> as opposed to the greater. It was, you know, a happy hour once a month. And uh, I met him there and, and at all the press conferences. And then I needed a place to live. I moved into his parents' house because they were away on vacation. And he came over every day and mowed the lawn, cut the bushes, you know, and while I was sitting by his parents' pool. So huh. that's how we got to know each other. I thought, what a nice son, but really he was just hanging out there. You just were like, hey, I need a place to stay. I know we've just met, but can I stay in your parents' house like that? No, I knew him for a while. I knew him for a few months. And, and so uh, he said, oh, my parents are going, you know, on vacation. They need a house sitter. I said, good, because that's the time when I, before I move into my new apartment. Were you attracted to him? Do you remember? Or it was just like, hey, this is just a friend and I could do this because we're not going to, we're not going to hook up. Like it, it never occurred to me. It occurred to him, but it never occurred to me. I thought, oh, what a nice person. <laughs> you know, <laughs> 
it's so funny. My uh, my business partner, she became roommates with her current husband because she was like, oh, we're totally not going to hook up. This is just some guy that I can trust. And he knew all along too. And like every day, like he was like starting to like, hey, let's get there, let's get there. And then he finally did. And that was the end of it. So that's hilarious. I love that. I love that he came over and took care of the garden while you were there. That's awesome. <laughs> that's, awesome. that's a great story. So uh, talking about sports right, and surfing and what I thought was really interesting. So you you competed in the first organized surfing world tour in 1976. I did. And then, right. And then you left in 1978 to go to law school. Can you talk a little bit about why you did that? Yeah, I didn't uh, leave until the end of the surf season in 78. And I'd been competing amateur until then, until 76 when the pro, when, you know, the pro came. And there were only six of us on that first world tour, by the way. And so, you know, I probably left too soon. I don't know, but I just had, I'd been surfing for so long and it was just so hard. And I just, I saw some surfers around the beach and, you know, this is what I love surfers more than anyone else. What happens though, is, you know, especially the pro surfers, you know, unless you're like really, really at the top, you don't always, when that goes away, they don't have a lot else to cling to. And I just decided, okay, I'd better. And I was 28 when I left. So there you can figure out my age. So I just decided, I think I'll take this opportunity and I don't know. It, it took me eight years to go to college. Um, and then I thought, oh, I think I'll go to law school. You were just like, hey, I, I'm just going to go to law school. Like, this Yeah, let's, yeah go for it. You know, very surfer-esque. And I, of all the law schools I got into, the one I, I picked was Pepperdine because it was on the beach at Malibu. <laughs> all the wrong reasons. Well, that's, I mean, it's the most beautiful college in the world, I think, because you've got a view of the beach. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. And it's on that hill. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And, and more than that, a lot of law students go crazy during law school. I just went surfing at the boo. At the boo. That's awesome. At the boo. I'm going to start, I'm going to just start saying that. So <laughs> the, the thing that I thought was really interesting, again, like I said, I totally nerded out on you and I'm sorry to every other person that I interviewed, <laughs> but I'm never going to do this research. But for you, like I said, I totally nerded out. So for the first pro event, right, instead of cash, the sponsors wanted to hold a, a raffle to date you. Is that correct? Is that true? Oh, that was horrible. Yeah. What happened was we flew around the world. And when we got there, they had promised that they would meet these new IPS, International Professional Surfing Minimums. They, they held a meeting with the six of us women and said, you know what? We don't really have the contest money. So we've come up with this idea. And it was chapstick, you know, chapstick that you put on your lips. <laughs> They said, we're going to hold a nationwide raffle and the winner will get his choice of whichever one of you he so desires for a date. And we'll use that money to pay for your prize money. To them, it made perfect sense. And we said, no. That's terrible. So they yeah. were like, so instead of, instead of raising money or, you know, giving money as a, as a true sponsorship, they actually wanted to raise money to date whichever one of you the winner just wanted. Yeah, raffle us off, basically. That's that's as in a chattel. <laughs> and this is 1976, the year that I was born. Really? That's really what happened? It's absolutely what happened. There wasn't so much more than that. That's just was just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, just to get sponsors, you know, we tried holding, you know, the expression session events, you know, inviting media and so and we they had this article about us in the Honolulu paper asking for sponsors. The only one that called was this guy who manufactured this product called Candy Pants, edible underwear. Wow. <laughs> he said no. <laughs> Cinnamon flavored, red. They, he, <laughs> if people could see you, Matt, just so they know you're hanging your head and laughing. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. Yeah. So seriously, that was the only, oh my God, that's crazy. I'm sorry that that's what you went through. Thank you. You know, we powered on. We thought these idiots, we had more to focus on than that. But it was hard compared to the men, you know, because they would trip over themselves to sponsor the men. The other guy surfers, were they like, we should really help this cause? Or they also agreed? I think there, a lot of them supported us. Not all of the photograph surf photographers did. You know, they'd say, oh, I can't sell a photo in Surfer Magazine. I'm not going to waste my film. You know, they used to have to buy film and get it developed back then. But uh, some of them said, you know, we'll shoot you. 
And some of the guys, you know, and also when, when we started IPS, I started it with Fred Hemmings, who was the executive director, and Randy Rarick, who ran the men's division, and I ran the women's division. And Randy always would say, hey, I've got this sponsor. I'm going to give you part of our prize money, you yeah. know, and, and they, they got it. And, uh, you know, the male pros were nice to us. They, they were busy surfing. Well, I'm sure some of them, not so much, but I mean, I know this is probably impossible for you to answer, right? But what is the coolest experience that you want to share that you did in surfing? Like the biggest wave, the coolest beach, the, the biggest accomplishment, who you met? I don't know. What's like one of the coolest memories that you had back then in surfing? In the in mid seventies, uh, there was a contest called the Smirnoff and, and it was held in very big waves. It was the time of Billie Jean King. It was more like a publicity stunt, but we didn't care. They decided, all right. They said to us, you want to be equal? We'll show you equal. You're going to compete against the men. And we went, all right, bring it on. So they put one woman in each heat of men. And the waves that year were so big. It was that big sunset, bigger than I'd ever surfed before. But all of us were going, yeah, we could do that. You know? <laughs> and I remember my mom chasing me down the beach trying to say, you can't paddle out there, you'll drown, you know, this is my mother, and there's like a crowd of, you know, I don't know, thousands of people, and I remember I ran away from her and escaped into the contestant-only area to get my jersey, and, but, you know, I, I caught a couple waves in that heat, and we were, we were respectable. I only caught two, uh, but they, and they take your top three, but just to catch waves in a heat, competing with those guys in my heat alone, and these names will make sense to surfers, okay, Eddie Icow, Terry Fitzgerald, Sammy Hawk, Al Chapman. So these were, these were major surfers, major, major surfers. So to be able to snatch waves in that environment, it was the beginning. That's awesome. Did, did any, any of the women competitors beat any of the guys? Or just... Well, you know, Margot Oberg, who was really the best back then, and, and her name is very well known. She advanced in her heat. And I can tell you this guy... This was a mentality. He was so humiliated. He never, and I know who he is, so I'm not going to humiliate him more because obviously I don't know what's wrong with being beat by a girl. Uh, <laughs> but he was so humiliated that he just didn't want to serve contests after that, which she was really fine with us. Good, good riddance, good riddance. <laughs> That's amazing. That makes me so happy. I love He's a nice work. guy, yeah. Well, I'm sure he doesn't sound like a nice guy. You know, what about maybe because surfing scares me. The ocean also scares me. Sharks and waves and all that good stuff. So maybe like one experience that happened that actually maybe there was part of you that said, maybe I don't want to go surfing again. Did that ever happen? Yeah. And, and by the way, you're really smart to allow the ocean to scare you because if you don't respect it, you'll drown. And, this, and that goes for every surfer too. And every surfer knows that. They have immense respect for the ocean. So I re do remember a few times, but I remember one wipeout in particular at Big Sunset. And, you know, when you wipe out like that, the, the lip of the wave will come down and it will push you down underwater and it will push you down so far. Usually you look up to see which way the, because you can get disoriented as you're being tumbled, uh, to see which, I couldn't even see which way the light was coming in to know which way to swim, you know, to, to get air. And I remember, I have a very clear memory of thinking, oh, my stupid, I paddled out here to surf today and now I'm going to have to die because of it, you know, and I just came, I reckoned with, reconciled with that. I got to the surface and immediately gasped for a big breath, breath of air, but I got foam in my mouth because, you know, that's, the waves are up, that's what's happening. So that wipeout was pretty bad. It wasn't so much the wipeout, but it was what happened after, you know. What happened after? Well, that, I mean, you know, the wipeout, you know, you can get injured on a wipe, the actual coming down, the, you know, or you can, you know, bad wipeout. But yeah, it was just, <laughs> I made it. I lived. There are, what are those waves like off of Portugal or something that are like 900 uh, tall and like these guys are crazy for doing that? Yeah, Nazar. I, I couldn't, those, those are bigger than we surfed. Uh, there's women surfing them now though. Kudos to them. And, and I, you know, it's funny because I was looking at those and I was thinking, well, if I was young, would, I, would that be something I would see and say, I, I need to do that? And I really thought probably yes, but not now, obviously. Oh, that's just, yeah. that's crazy. So uh, can you tell me a little bit or tell our three listeners? I'm hoping 
hopefully by the time this airs, we have a few more. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about what it's like now for women entering surfing. Okay, this is what I do know. I gave a speech a couple of years ago where I, at, where I recounted to a lot of people in the surfing world, uh, competitors and, and people who own them, surf apparel companies. And, so, and I recounted the history and, you know, and I thought, oh, these women, who, there was world champions there from today who were present. And afterwards, these women, and I had no idea, they came up to me and said, thank you. And I said, what for? And they said, well, for doing what you did, but also it helps us today. And I said, well, what do you need help for? And they, they're, still, they're still going through stuff. But uh, as you probably know, just about a year and a half ago, or maybe you don't, if you, WSL, which is World Surfing League, which is, and we started IPS that morphed to ASP and today it's WSL. They uh, created parity in pay for women. If I'd have known in 1976 that it would take I don't know how many years is that, 45 years to get, I probably would have given up. But so I'm glad they have that now. I'm truly, truly glad. Did you go home after that event and just like open up a bottle of booze and celebrate? Did you cry? Like, what did you do when, when, you, heard, like, when you went home? You mean after I, the, after, you found out about the, after you found out about the parody and pay and they thanked you for oh. that? What did oh. you, how, I mean, what did you do? You made that happen. I mean, you made that happen. Well, no, there were a lot of women that made that happen. So that when I gave that speech, WSL had not announced the parody yet. And I remember they told me, you know, some of the men in the room thought you went too far. You pushed too hard is what that's what they said. You pushed. And I thought, oh, welcome to my life, you know. So but WSL took me out to lunch after that. And they consulted me. They asked me a lot of questions, you know, so they and then shortly after that, they did do that. Now, I do not think that was just me at all. It was a woman, uh, Sabrina, uh, who was on the board up in San Mateo, the Harbor Commission board, and would not grant the permit for the Mavericks competition unless because it's the state of California. And so she pushed this law through. I was uh, grateful to be present and to be invited to speak at her press conference. But she, along with um, Werner Hovath, I think, and Lorena Gonzalez. I hope I have the names right. These were the two assembly members that, uh, you know, put it in. And, and there were a lot of women. And there's 50 years of women. You know, everybody does part of it. So I, I would be disingenuous to say it was just me. And besides, everybody would get mad at me anyway. Sure. I mean, I'm going to podcast and they're not. But, uh, <laughs> but you, you know, you... Like you were a huge part of pushing that forward. So I wanted to tell you because I saw this article literally this morning, which was like the absolute perfect time. The U.S. women's soccer team settled part of their gender discrimination suit. And so ultimately they're fighting over equal pay and they're not quite there yet, but they are going to get a lot of, a lot of things equal to the men's soccer. And I think that that's a, first of all, that's pretty amazing that that happened with the day before you and I talked. But that really honestly is because of women like you who made this happen. And I am just, I am, I saw this and I was like, oh my God, that's all you. That's all you. So <laughs> I hope that, you know, you can just be so proud of yourself. I mean, really. Well, well, I think that soccer team is just amazing. And I'm glad that, that they made some progress. It sounds like they, like you said, they still have the pay parity. Surfer, believe it or not, surfing was just the, the first sport to, to insist on pay parity, which blows me away was really a bold and wonderful step by WSL. But yeah, it never ends. And, you know, I teach gender and law. I'm a law professor. I teach at Pepperdine Law School gender and law. And so these are issues I have been teaching about, not just on the level of sports, but of course, across the board on all kinds of, you know, gender, gender discrimination based on sex and sexual orientation. So this makes me very happy and I'll have to talk about it in class. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So what do you see? So I'm happy you segued into uh, you teaching and being a lawyer and teaching at Pepperdine, which I think is really cool that you went to school there and now you're teaching there. What do you see, like, what's left? What do we need to do? What do we need to do to get to that point, to finally get to that equality, a true equality in women's pay, in sports and all that good stuff? What do we need to do? I think it's a mindset. Once we, the mindsets get there, and, and I see this generation, this younger generation that was raised by us, 
my daughters would not put up with the stuff I did. And I'm happy about that. And neither will anyone that I know of in their generation. There's think, and the young men today, just in watching the reactions in my class over the, I'm, I'm, I'm just an adjunct professor. I only teach a class or two, so not yeah. a full time, but yeah. I've taught this class for decades. And to watch the mindset of the people cycling through it has been an amazing thing. And the young men that we've raised, raised these days, they take for granted that they are going to give these rights to women on every level. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I see it every day in my work, even in the nonprofit space, where you would think that nonprofits just are the shining example of what we should be doing, of how we should be treating people. And that's just not the case. That's just not the case. Nonprofits are just as bad, if not, by the way, worse than for-profits. And I'm always so disappointed. My, my business partner, her name is Allison, and Allison and I can go to a, to a pitch meeting, right? And we're in front of a board. So women, men, doesn't matter. We're in front of a board. This is a board of a nonprofit. And she and I could say literally the exact same thing. Makes no difference what we say. And they will always, 95% of the time, just look at me and say, wow, man, wow, that's really smart. They will completely ignore her. And it's just incredible to me. I mean, I, I see it every day. And so, yeah, I, I think we have a lot of work to do, especially in nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to just, I wanted to just go back for one second. So you were, I mean, and this is a well-documented case, so I know we can talk about it, but you were fired from your job at CNN after you gave birth to your second child. I was, and I became the poster child for pregnancy discrimination lawsuits, which I never asked for, never wanted, but it was thrown on me. They so, wrote me a memo and said, maybe you should think about mommy dumb for a career. Thank goodness they put that in writing. And they, you know, they, they didn't like the fact that I'd had a second, they didn't like the first child, you know, getting pregnant and the second, and, you know, I went back to work within three months after both children. But after the second one, my bureau chief just said, I talked to Ed, Ed Turn, not Ted, but Ed. And we, you know, with the baby and all those were, we thought you should maybe want to stay, stay home and take care of the baby. Wow. What year was this? 1992. 1992. So this is not that long time. That's not this. It's not a long time ago. No, it wasn't. But at the time, you know, CNN wasn't CNN. CNN was kind of, it had developed from Georgia and the South. And it had uh, the guys that were running it. And they were all men. They had very provincial ideas. It, it was not like one of the New York networks. They are now. But it was, you know, it was very provincial and they didn't even have a pregnancy or maternity leave policy. And in Georgia, you don't have to. And, and here I was in, in the California, in the L.A. Bureau. They didn't know what to make of California laws. It caught them off guard. I think what's really what's really important, I think, for especially people of the next generation, the next generation after that, to realize and to really celebrate. This was 1992. This is less than 30 years ago. It's really not that long time ago. And the fact that the fact that that happened, and I don't think that people even like today, they're like, there's no way that that can happen. Well, there's no way that that can happen. But there was literally like four minutes ago. It's just crazy to me. And I don't think people realize just how lucky they are now, again, because of people like you. I know you didn't want to be thrown into the spotlight, but you did actually write a book. I mean, you wrote a book about it. Yeah, I wrote the book to help other women. It wasn't about me. It was called Work Smarts for Women. The Essential Sex Discrimination Survival Guide. And it didn't say run out and sue. It just said all the things they could do, what their rights were. And, and, the, and then my editor asked me to please put in the preface my story. So I did. But I did write the book and I sold the, I had a, I got myself a fancy New York agent and publishing house, Valentine, a division of Random House. They paid me money. I feel like I stole money because they, because hardly anyone bought it. <laughs> to tell you the truth, they sent me on, they sent me on a nationwide book tour, but right about then, you know, women's rights kind of goes in and out. And that, and that book came out in 1999 or 2000. And right about then, everybody was asking, why are all you women have to be victims? You awesome. know, and so it was a bad time. Of course, maybe the, just the book was bad. I don't know. But there you go. <laughs> the book is spectacular. And I want every single person, all three people listening to this. to go out <laughs> Well, that's three book it. sales. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, I just made you what, like three cents for those three mm-hmm. book sales? <laughs> I think you can get it practically free on Amazon. I just, you know, I, 
I talk about this with a few of my friends who are, you know, I mean, I came out in 1993, 1994, something like that. And, you know, AIDS was wow. still- AIDS that was, was a long still, time ago. Yeah, it was a long, thank you. Thank you for making me feel that old. No, no, I mean, <laughs> what I mean is that it was not a welcoming world right. for you. So bravo to you, Matt. No, it was not. And, you know, AIDS was still a horrible disease killing a lot of people. And it was not, we did not have rights and we obviously couldn't get married and all that good stuff. And I'm happy that kids these days who are coming out, and by the way, coming out younger and younger and younger, don't have to face the same, the same things that we did, depending on, I guess, where they are in the country. But at the same time, I don't think that they realize how lucky they are. So my question to you is, do you want them to? Like, so girls who can go out there and never have to think about, I can't be a surfer, I can't, you know, I, it's a guy's sport, whatever it is, gay guys who are, who never have to think about, can I get married? They don't have to, it's just part of the deal now. Do you think that they should know what you went through, what I went through, what you went through, or should they just be happy and just accept it and not even think about how lucky they are? Wow, that's a deep question. I think they should know, and not because I want them to know, hey, we went through this, you know, it's all about us, but because I think, you know, just the way we want to know, you know, what Susan B. Anthony went through to get the vote, to fully appreciate it, and to know the history, because, you know, part of the reason the first day of my gender in law class is like we cover only for two hours cases from the 1817 and 1800s in which women were just you know, bashed around and, you know, given no rights because what happens is as you look at the string of cases over the decades, you can see remnants. You can spot the remnants of it even today, right? And I'm not going to go into detail because then I'll start teaching a class. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think that they have to know what to look for and what it looks like. And, and I think they really need to, everyone needs to value all of our rights, truly. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you teach kids. That sounds, again, I sound so old, but I don't know how you teach them that, how they should be appreciative of that. We've all gotten lucky in different ways throughout, mm -hmm. but I do think that that's really important. I think every kid who comes out should have to like read a book. Here's a book of what you guys went through, but I just, you know, yeah. it's one of those things. I, I, you know, again, this isn't about me, but I remember, but everything's about me, right? A little bit, Patty. But, but I remember <laughs> I was, I think I was 19 and I was like, maybe I'm gay, maybe I'm not gay. I just didn't know. And my parents sent me to a therapist. And I remember very clearly he said to me, you know, you're just probably questioning it. I'm sure, you know, maybe you're just thinking you're bi, but whatever. Here's a book that you can read. Um, but I'm sure it's just a phase, right? A therapist said that to me. So I took wow. the book and I went into my car and I opened up the first page and I read, I don't remember exactly what it said, but I was like, no no, I'm definitely gay. That's it. And that's it. And uh, <laughs> came out and came out in three months. But it was, you know, it's just, it's just crazy. It's crazy to me how far, how far we've come so quickly. And yet we have so much more to do. So oh, we do, we really, really do. So what do you, if I'm a student in your class, and I come up to you and I say, okay, what's next in, in gender equality, oh. in all that, what's next? What do you want to see happen next? I just want all the baggage to go away. You know, I just want everybody to just meet individuals instead of stig stigmas of people. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I don't know how we do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it's a, it's, it's a long process and I don't honestly know if it ever goes away. I just yeah. don't. Yeah. But I can tell you that we've made great strides, but there's a long way to go. So that's a contradiction in terms. That says absolutely nothing. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> I think it's just wine. <laughs> <laughs> this is Nonprofit on the Rocks. I enjoy bourbon. Mm -hmm. And I just did the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. And in the late 1800s, there's a bourbon um, company called Belmead. And this is Kentucky and Tennessee. And this is the 1800s. He passed away and his wife took over and grew it to like in like crazy crazy growth until the pro until prohibition she was the only woman uh owner obviously back then but like kicked ass and grew this company and by the way if anybody's listening to like bourbon bell mead which came back not too long ago is amazing so um one of those stories that even with uh alcohol made me so happy when i was on a bourbon trail drinking booze <laughs> to find out 
that uh, Belle Mead was way ahead of its time and this woman like grew it more than her husband did. So I thought that was just a really cool story. That is a cool story. We used to have a law in California where women uh, could not work in bars unless their husband or brother was present. Awesome. You know, as a bar owner, presumably, but they Love could it. not own a bar and they could not work in them. That's so weird. When was that law in the books? <laughs> that was around the 1800s. There were a lot of laws like that. We couldn't work delivering uh, the mail, uh, you know, for uh, what was it like, like the uh, Pony Express kind of thing, because who might open the door, you know, and we might get, you know, assaulted. You know, there were a lot of dumb laws. We couldn't be an elevator operator because we'd be in an enclosed space. And the, and the worst law, the one that brought a criminal penalty was we could not impersonate a man to get a job because they needed to the income. I, what are men? <laughs> men have like, it's so funny to me. Men are just so insecure. I mean, they're just so insecure. Like, God forbid a woman comes in and does something better than us. It's just so ridiculous and stupid. Men are just so stupid. Um, so I do want to talk a little bit about you being a board member of the Surfing Heritage and Cultural Center, because that is how you and I met. So yes. can you tell us just a little bit about the center and what you want people to know about it? Well, the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, it's in San Clemente, California, and we have the biggest collection of surfing memorabilia and artifacts. It's valued at $4 million compared to any, no other surfing museum comes close to that. And we interact with the Smithsonian a lot. So we really are the museum of surfing. And wow, I don't know what to say, except we have an awesome board and we're about ready to expand to a second location in the Dana Point Harbor in a few years for the Harbor Revitalization. They're giving us a space. Yeah. So we're going to turn our current space in San Clemente into an archival and research center and where our administrative offices are. So we're growing and then we're going to have a pretty big space at the Harbor. And it's going to be awesome. That's really cool. That's really cool. So I have two questions about being a board member, but the first is, if I don't know anything about surfing and I come to the museum, right? What is something that you want me to take away? What's something you want me to know? Wow. I think probably that surfing has a very rich history. It's more than just the, you know, the Eddie Spicoli, <laughs> you know, stereotype we all know. But it, it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, if not more. Uh, it developed in places besides Hawaii. It developed in Peru. I mean, it's a time for people to interact with the ocean and with nature. And it's, uh, it's surfing is so much more, I think. And I think a lot of people have discovered that during the pandemic as well, because they can paddle out in the ocean and, you know, get centered and grounded. So I think maybe the takeaway is that it's a very large culture and there's so many components to it. And wow, wait till they see what we have in there because, you know, we've got surfboards from Duke Kahanamoku. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's the father of surfing, the, the patron, you know, he was the voice, the, the figure, the everything. He represents surfing and aloha. Wonderful, wonderful man. That's really cool. What is your, I mean, obviously we can hear your passion for surfing. What is your favorite thing about surfing? Which I realize having, is an unfair question. I realize that. Having to be in the moment especially because my life can get very stressful and busy. But when you're surfing, that's all you can do. And that's all you really want to do. And you just, and, and when you're done, it just, you feel washed. You feel like it's, it's a reset of your mindset. That's what any surfer will tell you is true. Have you, it grounds you. It grounds you. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Have you ever, so I'm very lucky and I get to go to, I get to go to the boo. I get to go to the Malibu. <laughs> A lot. And, you know, dolphins and I've seen whales and it's really, really cool. Have you, I mean, I'm assuming that you've surfed with dolphins. I mean, I'm assuming that they've come up to you, right? And um, so have you pet, I mean, like, what is that like? Oh, it's really fun when you see golf dolphins because it usually means there's no sharks around. Yeah. So I've seen them all. I've surfed with dolphins, whales and sharks and seals and everything else. So the dolphins are fun, you know, because they, unlike all the other animals, they, they ride the waves. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're, they're cutting along the face of the wave, just like you are. And then they're having a blast and there's no logical working reason for them to do that. You know, they're just out surfing. So dolphins are the best. That's, yeah, I think so. And then they have you like, I mean, you sw like you swam like next to them, like you hung out with them, you pet like it. You know, I, no, I've never pet one. 
But actually, the, the, when I saw them the most was we were teaching kids in Hawaii how to paddle an outrigger Hawaiian canoe. Okay, and we were pretty far out to sea. And all of a sudden we were surrounded by maybe, I don't know, 70, 80 of them. And so I just dove off the boat with, and you could see the canoe, which was a bad example for the kids. I mean, there were other people that stayed on the canoe with them, but um, <laughs> you could see them sounding from underneath. And I've never seen that. You know, when they sound, they go so deep and then they come flying up and they jump out of the water. But to see that from underneath the water was really fun. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. And, and like a crazy shark experience? Do you have like a, like, oh my God, there's a shark next to me, I'm freaking out kind of experience? Oh yeah, I've seen enough sharks for a lifetime, but yeah, I've had, I've had that. I, I was paddling in one day at Laniakea, which is on the North Shore, and I went to put my right hand in the water to paddle, and all of a sudden passing, you know, perpendicular underneath me was a tiger shark, and it went for the longest time and I realized how long it was, you know, it was a good 10 to 12 feet. So I, you know, I kept paddling. I immediately, you know, put my legs up at the knees, right? So my toes weren't hanging. And then I was paddling with like my fingers only to get in, but he was definitely circling me and, you know, just kept coming back and finally got close enough into shore. And I, I remember this, this is going to make you laugh because I finally got to the shore and these two guys about to paddle out and I could barely, I was just said, there's a shark in there right there, you know? Uh, and they went, yeah, right, girl, you know? <laughs> and I just thought, all right, have a nice day. Yeah, good luck. You know, good luck. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and yet you went back in, so. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I would freak, that's always what freaks me out about the ocean. Sharks are scared. I know that they're, you know, you're not supposed to be that scared of them, but that's, ugh. Well, that you shouldn't be thought. scared of them. Uh, <laughs> and then they wanna, the, yeah no i i can't i can't do it and then the my last question for you is in terms of being a board member and you have board chair and you have to you know being a board member you're taking on the liability of a nonprofit. i mean it's a it is a big job and it's a volunteer job and you have to give money so this isn't like you're making money out of it not only are you taking liability on that if the organization gets sued you can be named but you also have to give your time and your money for free so tell me, after all that goodness, why should somebody join a board? A nonprofit, a nonprofit board of directors. Right. And the answer is they shouldn't probably. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I always get drawn in, you know, just a little help. And, and then, uh, you know, sure. And I always say, oh, I'm not going to do more than this. And then I do more. And, you know, now I'm actually co-chair of the board. So, but I, but I dragged a co-chair along with me, so it wouldn't be just me. I think it's because you have to really believe in what it is, you know, when you go out and ask people for money, it's, unless you have a passion for it yourself, it's not there, you know, and so if you believe it, it's okay. And for me, I just see something broken, I want to fix it. And it takes time. And so, you know, we're on an upper journey at, at Shack, and, and we're not there yet. But, you know, because nonprofits, as you know, they have growing pains, and we're, we're growing. So I love my board. I mean, if you read our board bios, you'll laugh because these are very, you know, very important people. You know, like one guy, he, he has an MBA from Stanford, but he, instead he starts off saying, Bob likes to surf at San Onofre or something, you know. <laughs> this is how our, and mine says, uh, uh, Patty has, a, has two children. Uh, one sings opera and the other is, is a bus in business. She tried hard to, to make them cut school and go surfing. <laughs> but you know the fact is you know all of us just have this passion for it where it dominates our resumes it dominates our life and dominates our thinking and i'll just say this you need that passion you can't get far without it yeah you know and i hate to use that word passion because everybody says find your passion but it's really really true i love that and to join a board you're right you need to find your passion you just do because otherwise it's a lot of work people join for all reasons they want to find jobs. They think they'll make good connections because usually your board members have deep pockets or they maybe want to make friends, which is nice. But uh, so, you know, really, I think you have to, you have to figure out what everybody's there for, especially if you're chair. I'm glad I that you're finished this. I'm glad you're drinking your wine. That makes me happy. I don't know. I've got two more business Zoom meetings after, but I'm fine because I don't usually drink, Matt. I did this in honor of you. <laughs> 
first of all, I really appreciate that makes me that makes me happy deep down inside. But also, I got to tell you, I do my best work with just a little bit of booze in me. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe you will too. Okay, so I just have two last questions for you. Okay. Uh, and I agree. I also know that these are unfair questions for you. But you look back at what you've now done and what you've now accomplished, and I know that you don't come across as somebody who boasts about yourself, right? But You've done so many amazing things. And I don't think that people realize that. And so, and maybe you don't either, but I'm curious, what is like one of the things that you are most proud of yourself that you've done? That's an interesting question. That's actually an easy question because it's gotta be the surfing. And because of everything I've ever done, nothing has come close to demanding the level of expertise, commitment, just hard work, what, surfing's not work, but the, the, the dedication that nothing ever, and whether it's a CNN correspondent or going to law school or teaching law school, or I'm an, also a hearing officer, you know, I do a lot of, you know, like an administrative, you know, judge kind of thing. But, and the reason I know that to be true is people come up to me and they'll say, oh, a CNN, tell me about it. And I'll just go, oh, yeah, yeah, blah, blah. But if they say, oh, I remember you from surfing, or hey, I want to, I'll say, wow come over and sit right here next to me. Let's talk about where do you like to surf? Tell me, did you get any good waves yesterday? You know, all of a sudden it opens up this part of me that's like, let's, let's talk about it. You know, let's, so I know that it's, it's gotta be the surf. I mean, I have a lot of friends who have kids. So what should they do? How should they, uh, if they want their kids to really enjoy the ocean and really, really appreciate, appreciate its importance, right? Because we're polluting the ocean. There's plastic everywhere. We're killing all the, you know, I, I, the shark fin soup is the one thing that drives me insane. What can we teach our kids? How do we teach our kids about its importance and to respect it? Because I know that's a very big part of surfing culture. Well, there's a lot of different things uh, like these junior lifeguard classes. First of all, they'll, they'll waterproof your kids. And I, I put I, I put my kids at the one, in the ones in Hawaii, which are taught at Pipeline in the summer when it's flat. But you've got the Pipeline lifeguards teaching it, old friends and stuff. But so you put them in those classes. You you waterproof them too, even if it's in at your YMCA pool. You know you, you just got to do that because any kid that's going to get you know smacked around by a few little waves is not going to be happy and not want to go back. And the other thing is. You know, I mean, we even our, our surfing museum, we, we do programs with kids where we teach them about uh, the ocean and about the environmental aspects. So ex I think exposing them like that is really important. And then the other thing I see parents do that I don't like is they'll push their kids in before they're ready. And I know a lot of actually pro surfers because they're kids of friends of mine and who didn't like the, the be, you know, they don't they don't always want to be at a surf on a surfboard at age two. <laughs> you know what some kids do some are you know we started this contest called menahuni Haleiwa menahuni surf contest that's for little kids you know and they have like three-year-olds surfing out there but you know they might not want to be in the water they might not feel comfortable enough until they're five or six or eight or ten right so just listen to their kids about it and make them and then when you're at the beach have fun make sure they're having fun they're yeah. not cold. They're and talk to them. Talk to them about the ocean and and the whole all the plastics and why it's important and how much fun it can be. And bring their friends along because they never have fun with just mom and dad when they get a little older. <laughs> you know. Yes, nobody does. I, I wish that my parents had just taken me. I, honestly, I real I I just would have stared at how hot they. I don't know why all these male surfers. I mean, I'm sure women are too, but I'm not looking that way. I don't know why all these guy surfers are so hot. They're just so hot. So for me, that will get me in. <laughs> well, anyway, well, I'm gonna have to take you surfing, Matt. You're gonna have to take me surfing, but I'm. It's gonna be embarrassing. I'm just gonna tell you, it's gonna it's be okay. I'm in. So two things that I've gotten out of this, aside from how amazing you are. Number one, I am coming over to your house. I don't know where you live, but I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> and come up with some Italian food. And number two, the next time that you go surfing, I'm totally joining you because I think it would be so much. Do you do, by the way, do you do that? Do you do any lessons? Do you teach anybody how to surf? Now? You know, I don't much, but uh, like at another nonprofit I worked for when I was on the board, uh, we auctioned off surf lessons by me and it went for like four thousand dollars so uh and then she said okay, if i bring a friend will you teach her too and i'll double it and i how could i say no that was a hard day <laughs> you know? but uh, we had a lot of fun and they became very good friends of mine 
That's cool. That's so really I'm going to wait till summer for you though, because I'm not putting you in a bad experience. You see, Ten. we'll go in August, Ten. July, Ten. South Ten. Swell. I'm in, and then we could document my uh, falling all over the ocean and just embarrassing you. But you got yourself a deal. I'm in. Okay. I'm in. Well, Patty, you were spectacular. Thank you so much. I could talk to you for hours. And thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything else that you want people to know? Well, yeah, sure. Join our membership. It's not very expensive, and you'll get you know you'll you'll get access to our gift store. You can get that anyway. We're online at shack.org. Shack. S H A C. CC, it's just like the Surf Shack, is Surfing Heritage and Culture Center. So check us out. And it's a fun afternoon, too, if you happen to be near San Clemente. Thank you so much. And I hope that you enjoy the rest of your day with a little bit of wine. <laughs> you did this to me. <laughs> I enjoyed your podcast. Thank you. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. So what do you think of my, what are we, like ninth official episode? Am I doing all right? You're doing awesome, Matt. That was number eight. Oh, number eight. All right, I'm one of those. Yeah, I know. It it feels like you've been doing it for nine. I get it, but it's just been eight. (laughs) So Patty, I'm in love with Patty. She's going to teach me surfing. She's going to cook me Italian food. Like, you know, as you can tell, I don't care about anybody else but myself on these podcasts. So I'm going to get Italian food and surfing. I cannot wait. I think we all know, Matt, that the real impetus behind your conversation with Patty was so that you could get surf lessons. Yes. And the Italian food is really the bonus. Among other things, like I love that Patty's also like a phenomenal cook. Well, she sued CNN and all that good stuff. Whatever. She's a cook and I need some Italian food. And uh, what good are you? You're not giving me any Italian food. So... (laughs) So Mark is the cook in our house. That is generally true. (laughs) Maybe Mark could cook for me one day in his speedos. Very excited now about our number nine uh, episode, which is with my friend Lisa Stein. She is the CAO over at StoryCorps. Are you familiar with StoryCorps? Yeah, I am. Aren't they sometimes on Morning Edition on NPR? I feel like I've I've heard some of their stuff through NPR. Yes, they're on NPR. They are all about sharing really cool stories. They've been around, I think, for fifteen years, and uh, she's going to share with us everything you ever want to know about how you run an organization, how you manage an organization, all the fun financial pieces of a nonprofit, um, and then really fun stories. She was on my board when I ran the homeless shelter in New Jersey, so she's going to talk a lot about all kinds of stuff. It it sounds like it's going to be kind of a meta episode because she's going to be telling you stories about people who tell stories. You got it. So yeah, so I'm very excited. It's and by the way, this is our first podcast with somebody outside of Southern California. So I'm very excited about that as well. Matt, nonprofit on the rocks goes national. Here's my question to you. At what point can I retire? <laughs> on what you're not making from nonprofit on the rocks. <laughs> you got it. Yeah, I mean, think about it actually. Nonprofit on the rocks is costly because I gotta provide my own bourbon. So like it's not cheap. Matt, we're gonna have to change this uh, title to no profit. On the rocks, honestly. So, all right, if I can't retire anytime soon, when can I at least get a sponsor? Like, let's just get like Maker's Mark to sponsor me or something. Uh, We have have reached out to Peerless Mm -hmm. through your episode with Mark Watterson, with my husband. We tried to tap Peerless, SodaStream. I mean, we're trying, Matt. I don't know. You're not trying real hard is what we're what we're agreeing to this, right? Not trying real hard. I take the slap on the wrist for that. I'll work harder, Matt. I really will for my 25 cents an hour. 25 cents an hour. Well, that's going to go down to 20. So I am very excited about next week. Very excited about Lisa. I love, I love, 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 love this, this one with Patty. And uh, thank you, Ashley, for making me sound just a little bit better than I am. It's hard work, Matt, but someone has to do it. All right, everyone, tune in to hear Lisa Stein on the next episode of Nonprofit on the Rocks.